what I want to do this uh, week is explore the, uh, the foundations uh, for what we might call uh, a secular Buddhism or a secular Dharma. And I'll explain more exactly what I might mean by that as we continue today. But I'd like to start with a, an image, and that is if you could imagine um, something like one of these great big castles or mansions we find in Europe. We, in fact, might even use the image of Gaia House itself. Gaia House started out probably in the Elizabethan period as a, a manor house for a farm. And when you walk along the corridor by the kitchen, for example, you can see the irregular old stone uh, surface of the corridor uh, that would have been in that original house. And then, over the years, that building was developed. There are particular features of this house that are from the Georgian period. There are elements of Victoriana, in one or two rooms. And then in the 1930s, the building was purchased by the Church of England and it was turned into a, uh, a nunnery, which had two functions. One, it ran retreats. Uh, the other is that it served as a, uh, a place of rest for um, missionaries who came back with dengue fever and all those sorts of things from Africa. And the Hermitage Wing, which is now our place where people do solitary retreat, was in fact a, uh, a hospital wing. And then in 1996, or whenever it was, when there were only six very elderly nuns trying to keep this place going, it was purchased by Gaia House and turned into what we experience now. And... I'm quite aware that this might be probably just another incarnation of this building, which might likewise generate another wing or two, um, perhaps other features in the garden. But at some point in the future, it may cease to function as Gaia House and become something else. Now, I think Buddhism is a bit like that. If we look at the different... Uh, traditions and lineages, the different philosophies, the different uh, uh, forms of meditation practice, and we track them across the two and a half thousand years since the time of the historical Buddha, we could imagine it as a rather complicated building with all sorts of an ad additions and extensions and turrets and fancy little pergolas in the garden all of which constitute what we, we loosely call Buddhism. But just as in a house such as this, it's very difficult uh, to be able to say, you know, but what is this house really? What is the essence of this building? Just as it is very difficult to say, what is the essence of Buddhism? What is it that uh, constitutes uh, the essential teaching of the Buddha. 
I don't think there is really an essential teaching. In fact, I can remember when Martina and I lived here uh, in Devon, I got quite involved in a number of Buddhist umbrella groups. The network of Buddhist organizations was one. Um, I was working also as a prison chaplain with another Buddhist umbrella group called Angulimala. And a lot of time was spent trying to come up with a definition that all Buddhists would accept as somehow defining them as Buddhists. Very difficult. Almost every definition you came up with, some Buddhist group or school or tradition would say, well, that doesn't really fit us. Now, in some ways, as Buddhists, one should not be too surprised by that. Because I think one of the most uh, striking features of Buddhist thought, particularly as we find it in what is called the Madhyamaka philosophy, the philosophy of the, of the center or the middle, it's connected to Nagarjuna and other thinkers who followed him in India and Tibet and China subsequently, state very clearly that Buddhist thought is non-essentialist. In other words, Buddhists, or at least many Buddhists, have been over history rather sceptical and suspicious of things having some essential nature. Now the notion of an essential nature is not just some philosophical um, curiosity or interest used by professional philosophers, but it taps into some very um, deeply embedded uh, intuitions and feelings that all humans appear to have. And at the heart of an essentialist view is the sense that we instinctively have of being me, in this case, Stephen. Now, no matter what philosophical views I might hold or what religious beliefs I might have, I'm fairly convinced, instinctively, that there is something tucked inside me somewhere, a kind of constant, non-reducible core, Stephen, that doesn't change, that's not in any significant way affected by the events of the world or even my own life, but something that remains constant and fixed. So I have the sense, as I suspect most of you do, that the person who is talking to you now is exactly the same as the little five-year-old boy who used to play with his dinky toys. And when I tell my story, when I recall what I have seen, heard, smelled, done, choices I've made, I have this conviction that in fact that it is exactly the same person, Stephen, who's done all of this and continues to do so and will continue to do so. In other words, there is, I suspect because of biological um, 
and evolutionary and perhaps neurological conditions, um, uh, a sense that has emerged of my constancy and my essentialness. But when you try to, to pin that down, when you try to um, define what Stephen is, again, just like defining what Gaia House is or what Buddhism is, it's very, very difficult to be able to come to any fixed definition. It all gets very fuzzy. And we find both in Buddhist philosophy, which analyzes things rather intellectually perhaps, as philosophers are prone to do, or whether we pursue this kind of mindful inquiry into our here and now experience. In both cases, we find it quite difficult, if not impossible, to get to a point where the buck stops and we can say, oh, that's what I am. That's me. That's Gaia House. That's Buddhism. And it's really rather strange. When we do this in, in meditation particularly, in other words, um, not just as a, as a conceptual exercise, we find that no matter how consistently and penetratingly and, and, and so forth, we look into our experience of being who we are, that um, we never get to a point where we can stop and say, oh, that's me. When the Dalai Lama teaches this, he uses a rather um, idiomatic Tibetan expression, Dzugu Tsuksa Mindu. Now, Dzugu Tsuksa Mindu means uh, there is no finger-putting place. Dzugu is finger, but finger in Tibetan means the pointer, literally. So Dzugu Tsuksa Finger, fingering place, mindu, doesn't exist. There's nothing you can put your finger on. Which means that um, there is no essential core constant in the, uh, uh, at the very heart of myself, or at Gaia House, or in Buddhism, uh, that is a sort of constant defining element of that being. So, rather than um, pursue this, I think, futile exercise of trying to define what Buddhism really is, we need to recognize, I feel, that all we can say is that these different schools of Buddhism, these different approaches, historically and philosophically, seem to be, in a sense, reconfigurations of certain common elements, in other words, if we look at the Tibetan tradition or the Zen tradition or the Sokka Gakkai or something, we'll find a lot of common elements, similar terms, similar values, uh, and so forth and so on. But they tend to be reorganized and re-established uh, um, uh, in response to specific needs of Buddhist communities uh, historically throughout the world. So in this sense, I think that we can more helpfully 
think of Buddhism rather more like an organism that evolves and adapts and if its ecological environment is no longer able to support it, then like a living creature, it risks its own extinction. And one of the great strengths of Buddhism is that it has a remarkable capacity for survival. It keeps on popping up in new forms. Some elements in common with other schools, other elements are either innovations or or new ways of thinking about the same stuff. And so in that sense, we can think of Buddhism as having exactly the same characteristics that it applies to everything else. Uh, if we go back to, the, again, the earliest traditions, we find that all conditioned things are regarded as impermanent, as dukkha, this is a term we'll come back to, loosely translated suffering or unsatisfactory, and anatta, not-self, which is developed into the idea of emptiness or non-essential nature. These are called the three marks of being, that in the practice of vipassana, of insight meditation, once our attention is stabilized on the breath or on an object of concentration, we then begin to attend to these features of experience. We start to notice them more consciously, that the breath or the body, the feelings, are changing. And as changing, mutating, shifting processes, they're never going to be able to provide us with a a reliable foundation for the kind of well-being or happiness that deep down each of us yearns for. So in that sense, these shifting conditions are imperfect, they're unsatisfactory. It doesn't mean that the world is just a miserable place. That's quite a misreading of that idea, but it's recognizing that we do live in a profoundly uh, transient, shifting, evolving and changing world. And not only that, but we too are shifting, changing, evolving, contingent creatures in that world, that our minds, our thoughts, our feelings are likewise characterized by this. So the practice of vipassana, in quite an important way, has to do with uh, training our minds to notice these features of our experience that we habitually either overlook or deny. In contrast, we like to feel that there's something in here or out there that is not impermanent, dukkha, and contingent and non-essential. And this seems to be um, uh, an instinctive form of behavior a selective form of behavior that has served perhaps considerable, uh, to considerable advantage in human evolution. But 
it has a shadow side, namely that it keeps us stuck sometimes in uh, a self-referring, rather disconnected, we would nowadays say alienated uh, condition in which uh, we don't really feel that we are flourishing anymore, that we feel inhibited, constrained, uh, trapped, stuck, etc., etc. So the practice of, of Vipassana, whether we're just watching our breath on a cushion here or whether we're paying attention to the world as we walk outside, is the practice of noticing impermanence and dukkha and not-self. Just paying attention to that. These are not difficult things to identify. Um, but they're quite, it's quite a challenge to keep our attention focused on that particular uh, feature or dimension of our experience because we're kind of programmed and conditioned not to give much attention to these things. And that's why the practice in some ways is, is counterintuitive. It goes against the stream, as the Buddha said. So coming back to Buddhism itself, I think that um, we can likewise begin by recognizing that in some ways there is no such thing as Buddhism. That we are really encountering a cultural, spiritual, religious um, a, a phenomenon that is evolving and changing over time and is adapting itself, as history shows us only too well, to the particular environments and cultures, um, initially in Asia, now in the West, that um, adopt it or embrace it or get interested in it. So going back to the image of the... Um, of this complicated building, this Gaia house-like nature of Buddhism itself, it's helpful, I think, at times to, um, to, to, to ask ourselves, well, well, on what is this building built? Where are the foundations for this edifice, this complicated edifice called Buddhism? Can we get back to see the ground floor? And perhaps we might even find there's some very interesting things in the basement. And the reason I think that's important is because the building or the edifice itself um, is so large now and so complicated that that often conceals or hides the basis on which it is built. And so as a kind of thought experiment, one of the things I'll be doing this week is to try to, to respectfully uh, put aside some of these, uh, orn these ornate wings and extensions that Buddhism has, has generated over history to try to get back to the ground floor. And the reason is not to say, ah, now what's on the ground floor, that's the real essential Buddhism. No. But what is on the ground floor is perhaps allowing us an opportunity to see some of the, the foundational structures that 
can be built upon, that can be reorganized, reshaped in a way that might respond more uh, directly and in a less muddled way to our contemporary secular existence in modernity. Buddhism as a, as a, as a cultural religious phenomenon I think is facing one of the biggest challenges in its history. The movement from a pre-modern to what in some respects is already a post-modern situation. That um, if you take, for example, the exile of the Tibetans in 1959, up until 1959, Tibet functioned as a uh, a pre-modern feudal society that had remained very little changed for hundreds of years. And then suddenly, uh, geopolitics um, results in a new alignment of powers, the emergence of communist China, the retreat from the British of the British from India, and suddenly, overnight almost, Tibet finds all of its... Um, traditions, all of its beliefs, its forms of government and religion um, under attack, which triggers the exile of the Dalai Lama and about 100,000 followers into exile. Now this has, has been an enormous challenge and continues to be so for the Tibetan people, that they somehow now have to um, function in a world that's very, very different to the one in which they have traditionally grown up, and yet at the same time, as exiles, one of the main purposes of their uh, communal life is to preserve the Dhamma, is to preserve their culture in exile. And these, in a sense, are two very conflicting priorities, to preserve something and at the same time to adapt to a very different situation um, in the world, quite unprecedented in Tibetan history. How do you do that? I think all of us who are interested or in or identify ourselves as Buddhist are confronting a similar sort of dilemma. On the one hand, we want to, to preserve something, the tradition, the lineage, the teachings. But on the other hand, we're called upon to respond and embody uh, such ideas in a very different environment, which is going to require, almost invariably, some kind of adaptation and change. Now, to cut a long story short, when we get back to the ground floor of this edifice, we are, in a sense, also returning to the historical roots of the tradition. We're going back in time. And this, I think, is one of the features of modernity that is going to have possibly the largest impact on Buddhism, namely the recognition that Buddhism is an historically emergent process, that the different forms of the tradition are responses to different historical situations, different cultural environments. 
And that's what, in a sense, has generated this wonderful diversity of ideas and schools and philosophies and traditions. But what do we find back in that earliest stratum of, um, of ideas that are still Buddhist? We find a bunch of texts uh, recorded in a language called Pali, which is a, a spoken form of Sanskrit, basically, that is no longer spoken today. And we find a body of texts called the, uh, the, trip, the, the Tipitaka, the Three Baskets, although for our purposes here we can just talk of two baskets, the Discourses, or the Sutta, and the Vinaya, the monastic rule. The third basket is called the Abhidhamma, but that is now accepted to be rather a later development. We'll find uh, translations of most of these uh, Pali texts um, in Chinese, which, um, again, are not much help to us because I doubt many of us read Chinese. But there is um, clearly a common body of, uh, of discourses, of teachings, of, of philosophies that go back to the earliest period of the tradition. And that's what we find, I think, on the ground floor. But the trouble is that the Pali Canon um, is rather bulky. I recently made a, a sort of guesstimate of how many pages in English the, you, you would need to write out or print the Pali Canon, and it would come to something between five and 6,000 pages of material. There's a lot of repetition, as anyone who's ever tried to read this stuff will be only too aware. So let's divide that number in two. We've still got two or three thousand pages of text. Now compared to the Christian tradition, where basically you have the four Gospels, then you have the the rest of what makes up the New Testament, but basically the four Gospels, you have a much, much uh, shorter and more manageable body of text. But, since the beginning of the 19th century, a small army of biblical scholars and linguists and historians and theologians have been analysing and studying the four Gospels um, it's now been going on for about 200 years and they're still working at it to figure out a number of questions but a key one is which passages in these Gospels are the most likely to represent what Jesus actually said. In a recent body of work done by um, the fellows of the West Star Institute, which is sometimes called the Jesus Seminar in the United States, uh, they estimate that something like 19% of passages attributed to Jesus are likely to have been said by him. Not many. Now imagine doing the same kind of work on the Pali Canon huge endeavour. 
Even a fairly superficial reading of these early texts shows that there are clearly incompatible elements. There are contradictions. The Buddha says one thing at one time, or the Buddha is described in one way at one time, and in another passage, you get the opposite. Or you get something that simply doesn't uh, agree very well with what's said elsewhere. And you can begin to see, and I'm not going to get into all the technical details here, that the Pali Canon is already a many-layered, many-voiced body of materials, some of which probably go back quite closely to the Buddha, others probably were developed by his followers in the succeeding centuries until it was written down in about um, 80 BC, about 80 years before Christ in Sri Lanka. And then it becomes fairly set or closed, that is the technical term. So I can't uh, pretend um, to really have any clear sense or clear evidence as to what teachings are more original and which later, or only in a very rough way. And the other great difference between Buddhism and Christianity is that we don't have a small army of scholars, linguists, historians and theologians uh, spending their lives analysing these documents. We have hardly anybody doing it. The Buddhist community does not seem terribly interested to fund this kind of work. Western uh, or modern uh, universities, university departments, likewise, even when Buddhism is quite high up in their activities, tend nowadays to focus on Tibetan and Chinese works. There's very little work being done on the Pali materials. Now I'm saying this so that you're aware that what I subsequently say is, is founded on a lot of, of uncertainty. We don't really know yet uh, the relative uh, likelihood of a passage being authentic or not. If we go back to what I was saying before, that each generation of Buddhists or each Buddhist or each country to which Buddhism has gone to in the past, has been able to embrace the Dharma because there are elements in certain teachings, certain practices that speak to their condition. Tibetan Buddhism, for example, um, is a form of Buddhism that has arisen out of a community's uh, reading and practice of certain texts But by certain texts, they're those texts that spoke to the Tibetan consciousness and culture in 11th century AD and later. Likewise with China or Southeast Asia, the forms of Buddhism that have emerged have always based themselves on a relatively small uh, percentage of the primary canonical materials. Now, one of the criticisms that I receive for my work is that I'm I'm a cherry picker. (laughs) That, in other words, I only select those passages from the canon that happen to suit my own particular biases as a secular, sceptical, post-Christian, existentialist neurotic. (laughs) (laughs) 
and that's fine. Uh, I don't see how one could do it otherwise. Um, particularly if these, uh, these texts uh, actually speak to you in a personal way. You see, I'm not interested in a kind of quasi-scientific or objective analysis of the Pali Canon. That could well reveal some very useful insights, but it's a different approach. For better or for worse, I find that certain Buddhist ideas and practices speak to my condition in a very uh, direct and in a very um, heartful way. And they make a difference in how I actually wish to live my life. So I do not wish to remove my own subjective needs from my study of these texts. And in that case, I'm not uh, an academic. I'm not willing to put aside my subjective biases and look coldly at this material. I'm interested in it in a very personal way. So the response I have to the objection, oh, you're just picking the bits that suit your interests, is, well, that's always been the case. It's ever been thus. The whole um, of Buddhism, all the different schools, are basically have done the same thing. Maybe less self-consciously, but again, most Asian Buddhist cultures do not have that sort of historical consciousness that we do. But now we do this rather self-consciously. I'm aware that I'm picking passages that speak to my condition and I'm ignoring or putting to one side those that don't. And of course, traditional Buddhists for whom some of those passages I'm not interested in are important, all the stuff about rebirth and karma and different realms and cycle of birth and death, they'll say, wait a minute, that's not Buddhism, what you're doing. You can't do that. What authority do you have? It's a legitimate objection. So yes, I'm a cherry picker, and uh, I'm proud of it. <laughs> and <clears throat> what um, I hope to uh, achieve uh, in, in, in my work is not, of course, to just find one little cherry in 6,000 pages of text and on the basis of that build some great big theory of, of modern Buddhism because one wouldn't have a sufficient foundation. I quite accept that. But what I have been doing is trawling through these pages of text and finding as many cherries as possible. And what I've been working on in the last few years is um, currently this document here. It's called The Pali Canon, Source Texts for Secular Buddhism, Work in Progress. <laughs> now there's quite a lot here. And this is in a sense my attempt to draft what might in some ways be a kind of secular Buddhist Bible. And what it has shown to me, and I hope by the end of our time together you'll see what I'm getting at, is that I've kind of, I'm trying to identify 
um, a particular voice among all of the different voices that speak in the canon, a particular voice that speaks to my secular condition, in other words, that addresses me in a way that does not require adopting a worldview or a belief system based on ancient Indian cosmology and metaphysics. So that is the common thread of the elements that I have selected. Now, having said all of that, I would like to now start with an example of a text that I feel addresses precisely what I've been talking about, but this is found in the Anguttara Nikaya, the, the numerical discourses of the Buddha, and I feel has a good chance of going pretty close back to the time of the Buddha himself. This is a fairly famous text. It's called the Kalama Sutta, the discourse to the Kalamas, K-A-L-A-M-A, the Kalama people. And it's an exchange between the Buddha and these people. Just one note before we get into it. In most traditions of Buddhism, including the Theravada tradition, in whose canon this text is found, have traditionally paid it no attention at all. It's only a text that has become somehow well-known because of the because of the interest that has come from largely Western uh, Buddhists. In other words, it's a it's a it's, it, as you'll see when I read it, it's got a strikingly modern feel to it. But this is the dilemma the Buddha is asked to address to the Kalama people. The Kalamas say. There are some ascetics and Brahmins who come to Kesaputta. Kesaputta is the name of the town where they live. These people explain and elucidate their own doctrines, but disparage, debunk, revile and vilify the doctrines of others. Sound familiar? But then some other ascetics and Brahmins come to Kesaputta, and they too explain and elucidate their own doctrines, but they disparage, debunk, revile and vilify the doctrines of others. For us there is perplexity and doubt as to which of these good ascetics speak the truth and which falsehood. Again, this is very much the kind of dilemma I think a lot of us have probably encountered in our quest for spiritual truth, philosophical meaning, religious revelation. We go to these different schools, different Buddhist schools, and one teacher will say with complete conviction that this is the Dharma, and will either... Buddhists are very polite, so they usually will um, disparage, debunk, and revile in an extremely subtle way. (laughs) (laughs) But nonetheless, there's clearly... Um, especially if you stay in any of these uh, Buddhist schools, you soon learn you know, what's, what's the party line, what's the truth, and what should be treated with at least a considerable pile of salt. And this is how the Buddha replies. He says, It is fitting 
for you to be perplexed, O Kalamas. It is fitting for you to be in doubt. Do not go by oral traditions, by lineage of teaching, by hearsay, by a collection of scriptures, by logical reasoning, by inferential reasoning, by reflection on reasons, by the acceptance of a view after pondering it, by the seeming competence of the teacher, or because, or because, because you think, oh, this monk is our teacher. But when you know for yourselves, these things are blamable, these things are censured by the wise, these things, if undertaken and practiced, lead to harm and suffering, then you should abandon them. And when you know for yourselves, these things are wholesome, these things are blameless, these things, if undertaken and practiced, lead to welfare and happiness, then you should engage in them. Now, this rather famous passage uh, points to a number of things. For me, the, the main thrust of this perspective is what we would nowadays call pragmatism. In other words, the notion of truth is not something that is to be found out there somewhere or in here somewhere, some kind of state of truth with a capital T that corresponds to a particular statement or belief or doctrine. But what is true for the Buddha is what works, what actually makes a difference in the quality of your life. That's true. Now, this is an idea that we already find um, uh, articulated by William James back in the late 19th century. The founder of this sort of pragmatic view um, in the West goes back to James and then followed by people like Santayana and particularly John Dewey, again a rather marginal filler, uh, figure in Western philosophy, but I think a very important one. Dewey particularly was very concerned with what works, what actually makes a qualitative difference to our experience of life here and now. It's still, I think, for us very difficult in, uh, to, to get the pragmatic view. The word pragmatic, has been, in popular usage, is rather trivialized. It just means somebody who's practical, who's more concerned with getting things done than holding some view or opinion. But pragmatism um, uh, at its root has to do with a radical rethinking of what the word true means. It rejects the idea that to be true means to correspond to some state of affairs in the world. In other words, this is called traditionally the correspondence theory of truth, that a statement is true if it matches or fits some state of affairs out there that can be checked. For the pragmatists, uh, that whole model of truth is abandoned. And instead, truth is concerned with what makes a qualitative difference in the improvement of human life. Now this is very close to this. 
the Buddha is quite sceptical of appealing to tradition, to lineage, to scripture, to logical reasoning, to um, believing something because the speaker who says it seems to know what they're, they're about, or simply because the teacher, the, the speaker happens to be my guru. What, they, what these things are saying is true because of these reasons. That, for the Buddha, does not count for very much. What counts is when you know for yourselves, this is the refrain that's repeated uh, in both of these uh, uh, statements he makes here, when you know for yourself that these things are skillful or wholesome or good, and particularly when you know that when undertaken and practiced they lead to harm and suffering, or when undertaken and practiced they lead to welfare and happiness. Then you should engage in them. So this is um, a pragmatic approach uh, that requires not just belief in something, but it requires that you, you check these things out for yourselves. You try them out. Your meditation is of value, let's say, not because the Buddha has said it's of value or because rationally it appears to make a lot of psychological sense, which might help you in doing it. But at the end of the day, what matters is does it actually make a difference? And if it doesn't, then you have to question what value it has. And I think we often find ourselves, if we've spent some time, whether it be in a Buddhist tradition or a Hindu tradition or a Christian tradition, we find that we do these practices. Um, and there might be some initial benefit. Often there is a sense of breakthrough, a sense of discovery, a sense of liberation on encountering some of these practices and ideas. But over time, it's quite common that just by doing the same thing again and again, it becomes a bit stale, a bit flat, and it may be that it ceases to really speak or address the needs of our condition here and now. And yet we still keep doing it. We do it because we think, well, you know, I'm, you know, this is only my judgment, but my teacher is enlightened, he knows better, the tradition knows better, I'll keep doing it anyway. Or we have a sense that uh, all of, you know, I've, I've thought about this for so long, I've studied it, um, it all makes so much sense, but in actual practice, it doesn't really seem to affect any significant change, it doesn't deal. In a, in a real therapeutic way with my inner pain, my anxieties, my suffering. And it doesn't actually tend to make me particularly happy. I just keep plodding along, doing my commitments and my 30 minutes in the evening out of some kind of um, sense of obligation often. And yet the very vitality or um, uh, power of these practices seems to, to dissipate. So what's being said here is actually quite challenging, and it's particularly challenging to any kind of orthodoxy, any kind of dogmatic system, which we feel somehow beholden to for whatever reason. Kalamas, 
A person who is greedy, hateful, confused, overpowered by these things, his thoughts controlled by them, will destroy life, will take what, with what is not given, engage in sexual abuse, tell lies and so on, and he'll prompt others to do likewise. Will that conduce to his harm and suffering for a long time? Yes, they say it will. But Callum is a disciple who is devoid of covetousness, of ill will, unconfused, clearly comprehending, ever mindful, who dwells pervading one quarter with a mind imbued with loving kindness, another quarter with compassion, sympathetic joy, and equanimity. When such a person has made his mind free of enmity, free of ill will, he has one, he says four assurances. I'm just going to give you two of them. Two assurances in this very life. So again, the, the idea here is that by, by pursuing these kinds of, of meditations, these reflections, uh, that these have value if they can be seen to actually diminish our, our, our tendency to want to sort of get what appears to produce satisfaction, to grasp at things, to get attached to things, to reject and be hateful to things that don't do that, to people who disagree with us. A person who can remain clearly comprehending, ever mindful. And this refers to both the practice of mindfulness and also the practice of, of sampajanya, clear comprehension, clear awareness, being mindful and clearly aware, which likewise opens up the possibility of a more loving, compassionate, a joyful, equanimous condition. Such a person arrives at two assurances. Let me tell you what these are. The first one is, if there is another world after death, if good and bad deeds bear fruit and yield results, it is possible that with the breakup of the body after death, I shall arise in a good destination in a heavenly world. Okay, so in other words, if there is rebirth, and if there is a law a moral law of karmic cause and effect, then such a person who's become less greedy, hateful, confused, more loving, more compassionate, then such a person will be born in a good destination, will go to heaven, basically. will get uh, the fruits and the results after death of uh, what they have done. But the second assurance is this. If there is no other world, and if good and bad deeds do not bear fruit and yield results, still, right here, in this very life, I live happily, free of enmity and ill will. Now this passage um, comes to many Buddhists as a bit of a shock. Because the Buddha simply seems to be saying, well, if rebirth, karma are the case, then you will get 
the good results. But if they're not the case, then you will find a way of being here and now that is fulfilling. You live happily, free of enmity and ill will. It seems, at least in this text, that the Buddha is not assuming the classical Indian worldview of karma and rebirth. I have to admit that this, as far as I'm aware, is the only passage (laughs) in 6,000 pages of text that says this. But, and here I'll use uh, an example from my rather uh, meagre understanding of biblical criticism, um, that one of the principles, uh, sort of guidelines or rules of thumb in biblical critical scholarship is something is likely to be more original if it would not if there is little if there is no reason for it to have been added later you see what i mean i mean if the text says and the buddha was sitting on his throne and he emitted colored lights from all of his orifices and he levitated to a million miles and he manifested his bodies all through the universe you could think, well, this is just being said so that the Buddha appears in a good light. (laughs) If, um, uh, and again, if if it says the Buddha remembers all of his past lives, that for Indians would be a terribly impressive thing. But if you get a passage like this, you have to ask, well, wait a minute, in in, in whose interests would it have been to have added this passage later? particularly if we remember that the people who, who recorded and memorized and then wrote down these passages were largely Indian Buddhist monks who held the worldview of past and future lives and karma, which run through the rest of the canon. It's unlikely that uh, such a person would have then invented this passage and put it in later. Because it seems, in fact, it doesn't only seem, it does uh, challenge and question some of the basic assumptions that Buddhists have. It actually doesn't fit terribly well with the rest of the, or with much of the rest of the material. So on those grounds, it seems likely that it's original. Again, you may not accept that argument. But I find it quite convincing, but then I would, wouldn't I? (laughs) But I think you can get a sense from this text that um, suddenly you hear a voice, or I hear a voice, coming through these discourses that seems to be speaking in a different way, that seems to not accord with... Uh, the orthodox views of most schools of Buddhism. How did this get here? And are there other passages within the canon that seem to speak in a similar way, that resonate at the same kind of pitch, that seem concerned with this highly pragmatic approach to uh, personal transformation here and now as the primary goal of the practice? In other words, a concern that is explicitly 
secular. Now, by, I just want to say a couple of words about secular, and then we'll stop. The word secular is often spoken of as simply the opposite of the adjective religious. So you have a religious view of the world and you have a secular view of the world. That's how it is largely used if you read the press books today. But the word secular has its origins in the Latin word seculum, which means this age or this place or this this world. So a secular approach is an approach to life that is concerned with the effects of an idea or a practice that um, occurs in this world, in this age, at this time, and does not um, have its value postponed, as it were, till some post-mortem state. And I think it does suggest that there is something common in probably all religions, that the, the ultimate goal of the practice, however much good you may do in this world, will lie after death. And yet here we have a passage, I feel, that is unambiguously secular. And this, therefore, serves, or can serve, as a, a starting point for a secular reading of the Buddhist tradition as a whole. And that's what I'm going to be doing in the coming days. So we'll have this afternoon a discussion period for uh, the last, during, during the last walking, se- what would have been the last walking session before tea, in which we can uh, pose questions, make comments to what I've been saying today. But um, I'd like to leave that here now and just say a few words about walking meditation, which is what we're going to be doing for the next uh, 45 minutes. Now, I know that many of you are probably used to doing walking meditation, so you don't have to really pay attention to what I say. Walking meditation, for those of you who have not done it before, is really the same as what we do when we sit, but we do it standing up and moving along. And I think this is important uh, for a number of reasons. One is that it, 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 it... gets us out of this idea that meditation means sitting cross-legged on a cushion. And once we stop sitting cross-legged on a cushion, then we don't, we're not really meditating anymore. The Buddha presented the practice of mindfulness as one that was equally applicable to when we are sitting down, or lying down, or standing, or walking, what are classically known as the four postures. And I do think it's rather crucial that this practice that we are uh, doing here together, the practice of mindfulness and awareness, not be overly identified with a particular posture. And likewise, particularly when we try to integrate these uh, qualities of mind in our daily lives, we don't have the luxury of being able to sit cross-legged on a cushion each time we face some problem that the awareness and the mindfulness are qualities that we need to infuse uh, in everything we do. Again, sounds nice. It's actually very difficult. 
There's, there's so many other habits and pressures that uh, keep throwing us off track. So as a first step towards this kind of integration of practice, we do walking meditation. Now the easiest way to explain it is to demonstrate it. Go outside, if you, if you, you can also go to the walking room there, or walk up and down the corridor indoors if you wish. But find a piece of ground about 10 yards long. Spend a few moments just standing still, noticing the pressure of your body against the ground. Feeling what it's like to be upright and breathing. Opening your awareness to all the different sounds that you hear. Aware, and this is where it differs from sitting meditation, your eyes are going to be open. You're going to be a lot more visual input. It's useful to maybe cast your eyes about six feet in front of you. And to try throughout the walking meditation to keep your head pretty much trained on that point. There's a great temptation if you see something interesting or you hear something interesting. We'll look around at it and get distracted. So try to keep your attention focused about six feet in front of you. And then when you feel settled, then slowly, but not too slowly, you just start walking, raising your feet, placing them. Now, if you haven't done this before, it will feel a bit contrived when you start. It will feel a bit awkward, perhaps. But as you get into it, you'll find that you become more and more conscious of the rhythm of your body as it moves and your contact with the ground as you place your feet and the feel of the breeze against your skin that that becomes the focus of your awareness in the same way that when you were sitting here you were focused on the breath and the sensations in the body but now we're doing it in a slightly reconfigured way So as you continue, you may find that you can get just as focused and present in walking as you could in sitting. If you get distracted, then what you can do is just, if you really get distracted, your mind starts going all over the place, then just stop and stand, maybe shut your eyes, come back to your breathing, and when you've restored a degree of equilibrium, of focus, then you start again. And so the idea is that throughout our periods of meditation, whether sitting or walking, we establish a continuity of attention between the different periods of the day and the different activities that we do. And that's, again, one of the more central points of this retreat is to try to infuse everything we do with a certain quality of still and clear attention. 
Is that clear? Good. All right. Well, let's go and do it. And the bell will ring at a few minutes before quarter to twelve, and then we'll gather here for another sitting before lunch. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.